0: J D Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J D Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to 4. Here's what's coming
1: up. Israeli forces open fire in Gaza as hungry Palestinians rush towards rare aid trucks and a deadly stampede ensues. I speak to Mark Regev, senior advisor to the Israeli prime minister. And I get an American perspective from a former State Department official. Then, burn book. Longtime tech journalist Kara Swisher tells me about lifting the veil on Silicon Valley and its most powerful players in her new memoir, Plus, Michelle Martin speaks to author Marie Arana about the significance of the Latino vote in this year's presidential election, which is unpacked in her new book, Latino Land. Welcome to the programme everyone, I'm Christiana Manpu in London. Life is draining out of Gaza at a terrifying speed, the words of U.N. humanitarian chief Martin Griffiths, as more than 100 people have been killed whilst gathered around food aid trucks in Gaza City, according to the Ministry of Health there. The IDF released these drone pictures earlier, and despite disputed timelines, Israeli forces said they did open fire. A local journalist who witnessed the incident told CNN that the Israeli fire prompted a deadly stampede, which left hundreds of others injured as aid trucks and people tried to leave the scene. An Israeli official confirmed, as I said, that the IDF did use live fire, but said that the crowd, quote, posed a threat to troops. This comes in the context of a dire humanitarian situation in Gaza, where the UN says over half a million people are, quote, one step away from famine. Take a listen to someone waiting for aid earlier.
2: I am not ashamed to say it. It's become normal because we have reached the level of famine. Tens of children have become martyrs because of the famine. I cannot wait until my child is martyred because of the famine. We all have reached a stage that we are not ashamed to go and get a bag of flour.
1: Joining me now is Mark Regev. He's special advisor to the Israeli prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. Welcome back to the program, Mark Regev. Um, As I said, there are disputed timelines. Either the shooting was first and then the stampede, or the stampede was first and then the shooting. But the facts are the facts. There are dead and injured. I think the first question, if you could answer, is who were these aid... who, Who was this aid being driven in by or for? The UN and the normal, you know, known aid agencies said that they had nothing to do with it. Do you know who it was?
3: I know the following, that in order to help alleviate uh, the food shortage in Gaza, that we authorized and our convoy of, I think, some 30 trucks uh, entered uh, Gaza last night, headed for the northern Gaza Strip. And uh, uh, this shows that Israel is interested in seeing aid and foodstuffs reach the civilian population. Unfortunately, uh, I, I, uh, we saw a situation where there was a mass uh, casualty tragedy, where it, it looked like the uh, civilians were storming the trucks, uh, uh, trying to, to, to take the food uh, um, out of desperation. Uh, and the uh, and, uh, people, uh, uh, a crowd was pushing and shoving and, and people were killed. I can't tell you the exact numbers. I don't. As you know, don't trust the numbers put out by the Hamas-controlled Ministry of Health in Gaza. Uh, There were reports that maybe their drivers were were driving over parts of the crowd. It it appears to be a a tragedy, but I can tell you Israel was not involved directly in any way.
1: When you say not involved directly in any way, what do you mean? I mean, you enabled this convoy, as you said, and your forces are there on the ground and open fire. They said it themselves. What does that mean, not involved in any way?
3: So the, this was, we well, we allowed the aid to come in. We were involved that way. Now, that's our policy, to allow food to go into Gaza for the civilian population. But in the incident of people storming the trucks and the way the truck drivers behave and, and people getting squashed and pressed and uh, uh, apparently there being mass casualties, uh, Israel was not there on the ground.
1: Okay, but they did open fire and people were killed. So I'm completely confused by what you're saying because they admitted the talking, IDF that, spokesman said it, said it on our air,
3: that's that a, they opened fire. That's a, that's a separate incident, okay. not connected to the tragedy with the trucks. Uh-huh. And that, was, that, was, that was different place, different time, right. in, in the general location, but not the same incident at all. And all right. I, have to, I have to tell you that we are not aware that the IDF fired caused casualties at all.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I can tell you that a journalist who CNN works with on the ground has a different view of it, but maybe there were other incidents. That, obviously, you say are is under review, and we will hope to get further clarification. But here's the thing. So Israel is the only force in charge of security by your own announcements, by your own volition, by your own uh, actions over the last you know, five months or so there. It is, as everybody is saying, Israel's responsibility, therefore, if you let these trucks in to provide security. And this obviously comes in the context of so little food going in that people are desperate, as we've heard from the international forces. So first, aren't you the only law enforcement people in the Gaza Strip right now?
3: Unfortunately, Hamas has not yet been completely destroyed. And I should have been clearer in that in the first incident of the truck being swamped by civilians, there was gunfire, but it wasn't Israeli forces. There weren't Israeli forces on the trucks or around the trucks. Uh, That was Palestinian armed groups. We don't know if it was Hamas or other armed groups, but there definitely was fire that we do know.
1: Okay. so my question again is Israel is the only law enforcement operation on the ground as you wage this war. Therefore, if you allow these trucks in, who do you expect to provide the security for them? Because every convoy needs security. I mean, I've covered this from time immemorial, back from Bosnia to Somalia and elsewhere. It all requires discipline, organization, and coordination, and uh, security. Who do you think should have been responsible for security in the convoy that you allowed in?
3: So, so it's, it's a difficult question, and we're grappling it with, it, with it, and we're talking to uh, the international community, to the aid organizations, to the United Nations, to other partners who are relevant in this conversation, because, of course, we want to see the aid safely uh, reach the people. Now, it's quite possible... As you know, Hamas has been stealing aid. That's been documented. We've heard people in Gaza complain about this. So is it possible that uh, that people uh, in Gaza don't trust that this aid that, that, that the international community is giving to the people of Gaza is actually reaching the people of Gaza and not being siphoned off by the terrorists? That could be one of the reasons to explain what's going on.
1: Margaret, I, I understand that is what you're telling us, but the context, again, is that You have been trying to dismantle all Hamas infrastructure over the last several months, including the police. They have been bombed into inaction, and therefore they say, and the U.S. and others are saying, that this is causing chaos, anarchy, and a complete breakdown of civil order. So they're not there to help with any security, should they be so uh, inclined. And secondly, and this is really important, you, Israel according to all the UN and all the NGOs like the Norwegian Refugee Council, are preventing timely and sufficient aid from getting in, which is causing famine, starvation, hunger, desperation, and presumably can also lead to this kind of chaos around a rare aid truck. So why are you preventing the timely insertion of aid into gaza for the humanitarian population and let's just say the u.n says it's halved since you know in the last month
3: so first of all aid is going in and this you know as i said aid went in last night Uh, i think the problem that we're, we're we're grappling with and i'd like to tell you there's an easy answer aid is going in the trouble is the internal distribution inside gaza Uh, And there there are security challenges that we've got to grapple with more effectively and we don't want to see a recurrence of today's terrible events. And so we have to talk to the aid, uh, the the international community and those providing the aid, how we can safeguard uh, aid. Now, we do know that there was Palestinian fire in today's tragic incident. So someone on the Palestinian side was there with weapons.
1: Okay, that's your view. Nobody else has actually said that. You are going to have it under review, and others will probably as well. But let me play for you then Jan Eglund, the Secretary General, the head of uh, of the Norwegian Refugee Council, who basically says that trucks are still lined up at borders, there aren't enough entrance points from the Israeli Gaza side, and that So much minute checking is happening as to make these entrances really rare. This is what he said to me. And he said it's up to Israel plus America and to an extent Egypt to fix this situation.
2: There is very little aid.
3: There is very little uh, supplies there to start with. So famine is breaking out there. There is no other way to describe it, which again shows that the carny, crossing, which is also from Israel, Israel could fix this. They are the occupying power. They have the uh, overwhelming military superiority. They could have convoys going over Karni crossing, which is in the middle area from where you can easily reach the north. It's very hard from here south in Rafa and Karen Shalom.
1: So, Mark, ABC News reports that you are considering opening the Kani crossing. And last month, the Biden administration was said to have asked you to open the Erez crossing. Is that going to happen?
3: So I can't uh, announce anything before it's decided, but I can tell you that those reports are correct in that Israel wants to work with the international community to to make sure the aid gets in. And uh, I repeat what you've heard me say before the people of Gaza, uh, we 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 don't want to harm them. We want to see them receive the aid that they require. Uh, and there are logistic issues. There are problems on the ground. I think, of course, we've got to focus on getting the gay aid into Gaza. Right. But as today's incident shows, we have to work to make sure that that, that aid is effectively uh, distributed. There's no point to have aid come into Gaza and it's just going to cause problems. So we have to do both those tasks. And we, as a government, are committed in doing so.
1: So Jan Eglin says that when they take their trucks in and he says, thankfully, theirs haven't been looted, he says they have a system, they have a delivery, delivery route, they have a distribution route, uh, and they, they, they know what they're doing. He also said that they cannot move up north, that Israeli checkpoints have prevented them from moving up north where the most dire situation is. We, CNN, have also conducted an investigation with all the geolocations and everything else which show that Israel fired on an aid convoy February the 5th. So there is a lot of insecurity that most say are coming from you. He also said that Hamas has their food. That's in the tunnels, that's with them. It's got nothing to do with the civilians. So this is about civilians trying to receive aid. So these are facts. And when you say you want to take more aid in. I mean, seeing is believing. How is, how are the people, how is anybody meant to, you know, believe that you want it if it's not going in?
3: So, so it is going in and more will be going in. Uh, that's our commitment. Do you think we have an interest in starvation in the Gaza well, I don't strip? Of know Of course we don't.
1: Okay. I don't know. I just don't I'm understand surprised. it.
3: No, no, no. I, I think we are we are screening trucks. We are sending trucks in. Uh, the backlog is often on the Gaza side of the frontier because of all sorts of logistic issues. But to say that the UN aid going into Gaza that Hamas is not stealing it, that's just simply not true. The people of Gaza, they say that the Ga- that, that Hamas is stealing the aid. They're the people in Ham- in Gaza. Unfortunately, with guns, they can take what they want, and that's an unfortunate reality.
1: So the question is then have you disarmed Hamas or not? I mean this is 5 months. Have you are you close so, to dis- destroying them and preventing this? This is your whole raison d'etre and civilians are paying. So have you uh, how much have you destroyed them?
3: So so Hamas has 24 battalions we we we've taken apart 18 and we're well on the way to finishing the job. Obviously we can discuss separately there are Hamas battalions in Rafah that are still in intact, and we'll have to deal with them uh, when the time is right. But uh, Hamas's military machine as an organized fighting force is being crippled. What you do have, unfortunately, is you can have lone gunmen or small squads of people who can steal aid, who can cause problems, who can even fire a rocket here and there. They can shoot at our forces. But we are winning this war. It's only a matter of time. Bit of patience. This can be over.
1: So a bit of patience. As you know, the international community and your biggest backers, the US, are urging no ground offensive into RAFA. Have you made a decision? Has the government made a decision to, you know, go into RAFA? And if so, when? And added to that, do you think that there will be this ceasefire that has been talked about?
3: First of all, the the ceasefire is dependent on a deal with the hostages. And unfortunately, uh, uh, I'd like to be optimistic. We're ready for a, a, a deal to, to bring our hostages home. We want to see our hostages come home. We're willing to pay our price, even a price that is difficult for Israel, which is painful for Israel. But to get our hostages home, we're willing to do that. But Hamas has to be, you know, a part of a serious negotiation. And, and unfortunately, so far, it's not clear that they are. And, and uh, I'd like to tell you I'm optimistic that we can get such a deal, which will bring a ceasefire. Unfortunately, I I have to be doubtful today. It's not clear that Hamas wants a deal. If they're serious, like in November, we can get a deal. But it's not clear to me at all today that Hamas is serious. And, Rafa, when will we see that? So here, I think, with respect, I think you maybe simplified the American position. The American position, which is actually, I think, in many ways, identical to the Israeli position, is that we can go into Rafa. We need to go into Rafa, because there are those Hamas battalions there and you've got to finish the job. But we said we will create a humanitarian corridor and we'll find a safe place for the people in Gaza. We don't want to see civilians caught up in the crossfire between us and uh, Hamas, not in Rafah, not in any part of Gaza. Right. Well, clearly, obviously, I assume that what happened today
1: will be a learning moment for trying to do something like that on a much, much bigger scale, if, if, if you say you have a plan. Mark Greger, thank you for being with us.
3: Thanks for having me, Christian.
1: And later on, we'll get some perspective on this incident from the U.S. with Josh Paul, who's formerly of the State Department. Now, you'll remember he resigned in October over the American continued lethal assistance to Israel. Now, though, turning to one of the thorniest issues of our time, how to manage social media and the role it plays precisely in conflicts like this. So many and so much power resides in the hands of Silicon Valley billionaires, and no one knows the peculiarities and talents of this layer of tech entrepreneurs better than Kara Swisher, who's covered the industry for decades and calls them out by name. Now she's chronicling her career and those she's covered in a new memoir, Burn Book. And she's joining me from Washington, D.C. Kara Swisher, welcome back to the program. Hi, Christian. How are you doing? I'm good. What is Burn Book? Why is Burn Book? What does it mean?
4: Oh, it's well. I don't. You have not seen Mean Girls, I guess. Um, A book. It's a book that American high school students have, where they write things about people what they really think, and they they might illustrate it. You know, this person is really like this, and they keep. It's like a diary for a group of people about people around them, and so it's called a burn book because you burn people in it. Like that person's really fake, or this person's really not this, or they. It's usually about physical stuff, and sometimes it's about personality or relationships. So it's it's an it's a thing people have and it has been in a number of movies, including Mean Girls. You're right, I haven't seen it. And are you <laughs> <laughs> are you out to burn people? No, well, I don't know. It's ch- Burn books are often t- truthful, right? They're the real truth about people. And so it's not just errant gossip that you make up, it's actually quite factual. And so it's a joke, it's a little bit of a joke because the next, the, the subhead is a tech love story because I love tech, as you know, yes. for many years we, we've talked to each other. But at the same time, I'm like, that's enough. Here's my. This is what I really think of these people. And I think that's really what I'm saying. What We're
1: I gonna say get into that, in a second, but tell me about the love story. So for those who don't know, this is your memoir about it. How did it first start, the love affair with
4: tech and the internet? Well, the first time I ever downloaded a book when it was at Duke University so many years ago in the 1990s. And I started in the early 1990s and I started using it because I was actually dating someone who lived in the former Soviet Union. And we were using all these crude technology things, you know, technology, waste, FTP. I can't even go into it. But when the Internet really started with the World Wide Web and everything else, the minute I saw it, I was like, oh, a way to communicate worldwide Uh, in a new, fresh way. And when I downloaded a book onto my computer, I thought, wow, you can download anything. And so it was a real revelation that anything that could be digitized would be digitized. And I was working at the Washington Post at the time and I was worried for its business. And and again, back to the actual people and the sort of so-called tech giants.
1: Mm So early in the book, you quote the French philosopher, Paul Virilio, who you said, Mm -hmm. quote, who said, when you invent the ship, you also invent the shipwreck. So in other words, mm-hmm. every every new creation also has its destructive p- properties as well. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so when when did you first, so, yeah. Uh, uh,
4: immediately, immediately, I started to see the consequences of it, whether it was Google taking over too much of search, I had covered the Microsoft trials here where they were dominating software, if you remember, that was an antitrust monopoly case that the federal government brought against it. You could see that tech could encroach on everything, like tech was everywhere. There was, it was like electricity, right? And so I went, once you saw it and you couldn't look away, you could see, oh, they could move into cars. They could move into Hollywood. They could move into music. And a lot of people in those industries, including media and especially media, didn't see it coming. And And I kind of did. I was like, when I was at the Washington Post, I would You know, I grabbed Don Graham, who was the publisher at the time, and I'd say classifieds are doomed because of Craigslist. We had this classified business that was very lucrative, but it was static. It was expensive and customer service was terrible and it didn't sell things, right? It didn't work. Um, And so this was free classifieds when news started to be free all over the internet. And I I thought, what's going to happen to subscriptions? If you don't have something that people really want, you're going to you're you're going to be in trouble. Same thing with display advertising that that it started to get taken over by uh, tech companies. And that was the heart and soul of the the revenues of The Washington Post. And so I just started I, I kept telling him it's it's about to flood and and we got to get on higher ground. And unfortunately, a lot of media companies didn't. Yeah, and,
1: and, and also a lot of it, I think, in your experience, it kind of depends on the people who are doing this. It's not just tech in a vacuum. Right. It's the people who are wielding it. And in 2007, you did something pretty incredible. You got a, a major exclusive with the two big giants uh, of the time, Steve mm-hmm. Jobs and, and Bill Gates. What, does, mm-hmm. what did their relationship and in that interview tell you about where this invention was headed?
4: Well, in you know, a weird way, they're from another era. They're from the beginning of it. Now it's dominated by the Elon Musks or the Mark Zuckerbergs or uh, Microsoft is, of course, still very active right now with artificial general intelligence. And it's a huge one of those valuable com- companies in the history of the world. But initially, that interview was classic as they were sort of. I don't know how would you put them the Thomas Edison and Henry Ford of the you know the one created you know software in every pot and the other one created these beautiful products that we use now you they're ubiquitous to do to to use all these services and so we wanted to get them together because they didn't really like each other they did later when Steve was dying but they they made up but they had been intertwined together growing this medium over over the over time at the beginning of this. And so we did that interview because it was, you know, when do you get a chance to have those people talking to each other? I think it's going to go down in history, that particular interview.
1: And do you think the one and your encounters with Mark Zuckerberg will, will as well? Um, mm-hmm. in, in that interview in 2010, uh, you he was still mm-hmm. in his 20s, and he was pretty awkward, you say, about public speaking. <laughs> you described, quote, rivulets of moisture rolling down his ever paler face. Yeah. Um, yeah. What did this face-to-face yeah. exchange say to you about what we know about him now?
4: He needed to calm down, I guess. And that, has that happened to you in an interview? Or Not Rivulet. Really no, that no. Was- no, not to me. This was uncomfortable. This was a panic attack that he was having. He claimed he had the flu, but it was a, a classic panic attack. We were asking about privacy. This is not something he hadn't covered before, but he got nervous. For some, I make him nervous. I don't know really what, what what our weird interpersonal relationship is. But I think the more significant interview is one I did in 2018, where I challenged him on misinformation, especially Alex Jones, who had been lying about these kids that were yeah. murdered in Sandy Hook and why he let them yeah. run— Why would he let him run rampant on the platform and cause so much damage? And he shifted the discussion to Holocaust deniers and said he essentially said Holocaust deniers don't mean to lie. And that was a moment. And I let him explain. I let him I let him spool it out, which he shouldn't have done. Um, And I basically wanted to show people this is the guy in charge of this toxic uh, river of anti-Semitism and I'll tell you where it's going. It's going to a bad place. This is this supercharges already existing anti-Semitic feelings across the globe, and this is you know this is a version that scales it beyond belief. And I, you know, I didn't say anything because I wanted people to understand that this guy was not inept, but unable to deal with these big issues. And but he was making the decisions. It took him two years to throw these people off of Facebook, two years. And then that time, so much toxic waste flowed into the, you know, the digital uh, veins of the world. And that's, I'm not surprised by the anti-Semitism today or, anti, you know, the, the COVID. It could, you could apply it to anything, election denial, uh, COVID um vaccine denial, okay. things like that. Go ahead. No, no, I'm just gonna say, if you're
1: not surprised by it, do you think there's a break moment? Is there some lever that we can pull to, to reverse it? No. That's the big question on everybody's mind about regulating, about just trying to mitigate mm-hmm. the worst of this hate and sure. disinformation and lies.
4: Yeah, well, it would be nice if we had any rules. We haven't had any. This is 30 years in. I'm old. You know, there's been not any legislation. And the legislation that exists, which is in this country, Section 230, Mm -hmm. uh, it helps them, gives them broad immunity. So I'd like to, I mean, there's laws in Europe. Europe has passed one, but it's got to be U.S. companies. US, U.S. regulators that do this because these are U.S. companies. And we're on the dawn of yet another major shift in computing, which is artificial general intelligence. Guess who dominates that? All the big companies. They're making all the rules. We still don't have safeguards in place, you know, and we should be able to do, in this case, it has to be on a global level uh, because, you know, killer robots, what if we ask it to solve hunger and it kills a billion people? We've got to really start to put in safeguards because that would be the logical thing to do if you want to solve hunger, you know what I mean, if you're a computer. Um, And so we've got to get with privacy, privacy regulations, safety regulations around this, uh, antitrust regulations. None of this is passed and therefore our entire world world is being controlled by private corporations that act like nation states and have, are inept to the task of doing it. Not that governments aren't inept, but at least they're, they're elected, right? They're elected.
1: Well, Kara Swisher, with Burn Book and beyond, you have to keep holding them accountable because, you know, you lay out, you know, a very dystopian present and future. Thank you very much.
0: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, lately we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern.
3: That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned.
0: Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Now, immigration is, of course, a top issue in the 2024 presidential election. As Biden and Trump head to the Mexico border today, our next guest moved to the United States from Peru at the age of nine and is part of the diverse Latino community who number now 64 million people across the nation. In her new book, Latino Land, author Marie Arana sheds light on the lesser known history of Hispanic America. And she's joining Michelle Martin to discuss the impact of this vote in the upcoming election.
5: Thanks, Christiane. Marie Arana, thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Michelle. Thank you. So the title of your latest book is Latino Land. You emphasize in your book throughout that Latinos are not recent additions to this country. I just wanted to ask if you would just read a little bit from the author's note at the beginning of of the book.
6: Okay, absolutely. This is from the preface, really, to the book, my author's note in the very beginning. Um, And it reads, we were Americans long before the founders dreamed of a United States of America. Our ancestors have lived here for more than a half millennium, longer than any immigrant to this hemisphere, and still we come. Indeed, although we arrived long before the pilgrims, and although we account for more than half of the US population growth over the last decade, and are projected to lead population growth for the next 35 years, it seems as if the rest of the country is perpetually in the act of discovering us.
5: What do you mean by that? It seems as if the rest of the country is perpetually in the act of discovering
6: us. Tell us what you mean by that. We are virtually marginal, virtually invisible. We're not in the history books. Uh, nobody teaches the fact that um, we have fought in every um, war since the uh, establishment of this country. We've, we fought in the Revolutionary War. We fought in the Civil War all the way up to Iraq. Um that is invisible it's invisible to people that we represent the 26 percent of the u.s marine corps is hispanic is latino we have fought for this country a long time and of course if you are mexican american you are part certainly indigenous which is to say that you have inhabited this territory for millennia in pre-columbian times So what I mean is perpetually in the act of discovering us, I think the image of the person jumping over a fence uh, is to many people what a Latino represents. And in fact, we represent so much more, so much more history. People don't realize, for instance, Michelle, that the first Navy Admiral of this country, David Farragut, his name was actually Farragut and he was Hispanic. His bust is, you know, uh, about three blocks from the U.S. White House um, in Farragut, Farragut Square
5: or Farragut Square. Farragut okay. Square. Yeah. Nobody okay.
6: goes by and says, hey, great Latino sitting there on the on the mm-hmm. park. Um, but uh, and, so and why great. do you think that is? Why do you think that is? Because we are the ethnicity that most intermarries in this country. We intermarry across races and ethnicities all the time. In fact. Uh, I think history tells us that um, the first time that there was race mixing in, in as massive a quantity um, in the world on this planet was among the Latinos of this hemisphere. Well, when Once the, the Spanish came and, and intermarriage began, and we have continued to intermarry here in the United States. So there is that sense that we lose our identity. Uh, my grandchildren, for instance, are a small percentage of of latino because the marriages have been with other with other races other ethnicities and yet there is a very strong very strong cultural bond between latinos even though um we may be from different parts maybe we we are cubans and don't identify with mexicans maybe we are dominicans and don't identify with peruvians much but we are still uh unified in the sense that when we come to this country the label itself unifies us, and we learn that there are many, um, many uh, connections between us. Of people who identify or would be identified as Latino, you'd say Mexicans would probably be the largest group, right? Mexicans are very definitely the largest group. Uh, there are 30, 37 million, 37 million, so more than half.
5: So this is a group of people who you say, people have often said, hey, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. So are there aspects of that story that you think are particularly important for people to know?
6: Well, history has moved populations, certainly Latino populations in this country. You know, when I came in, uh, it was 1960, when I came, there were uh, countable 2 million million, uh, Latinos in this country. Now there are 64 million. So. What happened? Uh, Let's start with the fact the Spanish colonial uh, territory of Mexico went all the way from California to. Kansas, and it went all the way from the Rio Grande to Colorado. So this was a huge, massive space that basically um, the uh, American administration, the U.S. administration, in the Westward Ho movement, the Manifest Destiny movement, said, "Go, take your family, put a to, to carry a stick, put the stick down. It'll be your land." Um, without any consideration of the fact that they were poaching, that they were invading. This was an invasion and incursion of of sorts. Um, And, uh, you know, families went happily off and created farms and ranches and whatnot, uh, and pushing the Mexican population off of their land. Um, After that, we had, of course, the the Puerto Ricans, because uh, America took over Puerto Rico it, it in the Mexican War in the Cuban war also with Cuba, um, the uh, the island of Puerto Rico became uh, an American territory. So Puerto Ricans uh, came streaming into the United States So the second largest uh, group here. Uh, of course the Cubans came after uh, the uh, Castro Revolution. Uh, got rid of the very corrupt system that the United States was supporting in Cuba under the Batista regime. And so the Cubans came in in 1960s and became a large group. So all of these um, uh, so-called blowback of uh, American policy in the United States has created these groups, has created these immigrant groups in, in the United States. And that is history that's worth studying. You know, I want to go back to, the, I want to talk about the nomenclature,
5: because that's something that you talk, you spend some time on in the book. Is it Latino? Is it Hispanic? Is it Latinx? You say that labels we never chose for ourselves, Hispanic, Latino, Latinx, a have been adopted and rejected and adopted again, willy-nilly, one after the next, causing grave doubts about their validity and reflecting the extent of our identity crisis. All of this, mind you, in an effort to portray us as a strong and unified whole. So just, say a little bit more about that, like
6: how how do you think about that, and what do you think about that? Yeah, the nomenclature is really important and, and interesting. Uh, the you know, we are Peruvians, we are uh, Ecuadorians, we are Argentines, we are Mexicans. Um, but when we come to this country, as I say, we become, uh, we we start to be called these names. Uh, the first person to to say that we were Latinos or, or Latin, as he would have said, it was Napoleon. I mean, he he had designs on conquest in the hemisphere when when Napoleon invaded Spain. Suddenly. Uh, Napoleon's heart jumped because, you know, Spain had this considerable colonial power in Latin America with all kinds of um, uh, uh, extractions uh, to to enjoy. Um, And so Napoleon said, "Okay, you you all are, are Latins. You're Latins like us, like the French. Like uh, uh, all the places that I'm trying to conquer, you know, are going to be Latin. So we became Latin America. We became Latin Americans. We became Latinos to a certain extent. And then uh, comes the 1970s with uh, with Nixon. And Nixon tries to Nixon has a very strong feeling about Latinos or Hispanics, whatever you want to call them, because he grew up in California. His father was a grocer. He um, worked with uh, people in the agricultural fields that he was selling their goods. And they were all, uh, all the uh, agricultural workers, of course, were Mexicans or Central Americans. So um, he wanted to make that a, a sort of a, a strong electorate um, and to be part of his support uh, population. And so he gave them a name. And we became Hispanics at that point. Um, So the name stuck to a certain degree. But then came the academics, the intelligentsia, which said, "Okay, we have to be more inclusive, more gender inclusive. And so we're going to be Latinx. Well, that was trying to change the language because calling yourself Latinos is a grammatical point. It's not a point about gender. Um, and so that only stuck to to the extent that 2% of the population of Latinos, only 2% use it. And a lot of people reject it. So where are we with that? The point is, most people call themselves Mexican-Americans, Cuban-Americans, Dominican-Americans. So um, uh, the the aggregate term um, isn't necessarily the one that we use un- in a unified sense.
5: This is an election year in the United States. And so there's always this question of what's the Latino vote going to do? Right. right? Whose right. interest is going to serve? You have a lot to say about that. That's one of those misconceptions, right, that you, that you are pointing up in your book and in your other writings, which is that the idea that there's this singular Latino bloc is just false Would you Absolutely. say a little bit more
6: about that we come from very different uh d- different backgrounds uh those who come from countries that have been uh really racked by communism um tend to be more conservative politically naturally the cubans uh, are very much that way um the the uh countries where where um there has been a, a let's say, dictatorships that worked and that actually did something and achieved something, they tend to be also um, conservative. So um, when you try to actually define where we are politically, it's it's, it's an impossibility because in, in truth, um, the we don't tend to think in the binary. I, like many Latinos, will switch sides and have switched sides uh, many times, depending on on who is running. Uh, we tend to be independents more than anything else. But because there are so many of us who haven't stepped up to vote, because there is such a large percentage of uh, Latinos who stay home and don't go to the polls, uh, there is an opportunity to recruit And uh, Republicans have been very successful in recent years in recruiting that lot of people, particularly because more and more Latinos, especially from uh, Central America, from Salvador, uh, Nicaragua, Guatemala, um, are becoming evangelical. And of course, as we know, uh, the uh, evangelical churches um, encourage you to be political. uh, And they encourage you to go to polls. And express your your um, your political stripe, so um, that is it's a it's a very fluid, very changing population, and it could go any way in any election. One of the things that has been really striking
5: is that despite the former president's. I think it's fair to say really outrageous and demeaning remarks about uh, Mexican immigrants at the launch of his 2016 campaign, accusing them of saying, you know, they're not sending their best, they're sending criminals, drug dealers, rapists. You know, we all, I think we all remember. And despite his efforts at various times to shut down the border, despite these draconian policies, separating children from their parents at the border when they crossed without prior authorization, He got almost 30% of the Latino vote in 2016, and he actually did better
6: in 2020. I just think a lot of people find that really intriguing, Absolutely. And there are very good reasons for that. There are very good reasons for that. The, um, the Koch brothers, um, David Koch and his brother, have actually created a group called Libre. And Libre uh, goes around the country and recruiting them massively um, uh, people to the Republican Party. And why is that? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons why. First of all, um, we are uh, we are largely a people of faith. Okay, you can say okay, Catholic faith, evangelical faith. Evangelicals are growing more and more by the minute, and in, in the Latino community, as I just said. But um, so we are a people of faith, and a, a any group that we're going to vote for is going to uh, is is going to be very upfront with that. We are largely um, very devoted to family life. Anything that appeals to family, and Libre does. Libre understands that. Um the uh of course the the other thing and the hidden thing that people don't realize is that many Latinos, the majority of Latinos, are really worried about the immigration situation. They really want that flow to stop. Um 80%, more than 80% of Latinos in this country are US-born. We are not foreign-born. We are mostly Um, U.S. born. We all speak more than 80 percent, 90 percent speak English. Um, We are uh, afraid as much as anybody in this country about those waves of immigration that are coming across the border. Um, Many of the strongest people, anti-immigration people, are people who who came as children. I think
5: that the sort of the perception is that there would be some sort of affinity or sympathy For people who are coming across, some sense that, well, you know, they must have a good reason. So, why is it that you said that people are worried about it? I mean, that because they feel what? That they're going to compromise their own economic standing, or because they feel what? That just the the sense of, I waited my turn, why don't they wait their turn? I mean, tell, did you you just say more about why that is?
6: Well, if you're going to talk about um, immigration and feelings about immigration, you have to talk about the undocumented, okay? Uh, the undocumented here are uh, an extraordinary group of people. people uh, I think people assume that um, the undocumented are a burden on society. and in fact, uh, I think it was the Carnegie Institution that um, did a survey and uh, established that uh, the undocumented the undocumented population of Hispanics have zero net effect on government. Budgets, So there are the uh, uh, zero net effect on a drain on budget, on the government budget. So let's start with that. Uh, one out of three. On no, just, this is where
5: I have to jump in, maybe in the long term, but certainly that can't be true in the short term. Certainly in the situation that we're seeing now, and you just can't have 300,000 people cross the border in a month and then not have it have some impact on, on local budgets. So I take
6: your point that in the long term that's certainly true, but in, in the, the near long term, ter- yeah. it cannot long, be true. In the long term, it is very definitely true. Uh, and I think a Pew research um survey that happened just a y- not not very long ago. It must have been in within the last three years, um, established that one out of three undocumented Hispanics owns their home. Think about that. Um, Now we can talk about, okay this last group of the the 2023, 2024, um, and maybe different, but we have to we have to believe the surveys to some to to some extent. And let's go back to
5: your original point.
6: When you say that people are worried about it, what are they worried
5: about? Are they worried that this this group of new migrants will reflect poorly on the community as a whole, or they're no, worried that their own economic foothold is not strong enough and firm enough to tolerate what seems like a shock. What, what, what is it that they're worried about, or how are people sort of seeing, th- thinking about this?
6: I think that's uh, I I I think that's um, very much uh, 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 related to the image of the Hispanic. I mean, none of us wants us to be. I mean, people cringe. When something when uh, something like this happens, right, that um, we are seen to be a burden when we are not. And we know we are not. And the, the population, what, what I go back to the beginning of what I said, being marginalized and invisible, because you don't see the great contributions of the population. You only see the headlines where you see people jumping the fence or coming, you know, s- streaming into uh, in, into um the farmlands in Texas or swimming across the river and you're made to feel that, um, th- that this is a stain on the rest of us. Um, that's the problem. Maria Rana, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. Pleasure. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish.
5: So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting
0: down graduation events
1: Returning now to our top story today, more than hundred people dead in Gaza according to the health ministry there. After Israeli forces opened fire, as they were crowding around a rare aid convoy. We heard earlier from the advisor to the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, Mark Regev. Now let's bring in former State Department official Josh Paul, who resigned from the State Department soon after October 7th in protest, and he's joining us now from Washington, D.C. Josh Paul, welcome back to the program. Look, I first want to just say that there are two disputed versions of this now i don't know whether you heard it but the fact is there needs to be you know we're not on the ground journalists are not allowed in and it's very hard you know to be able to distinguish but we know something awful happened and that israeli forces were involved so uh, the question to you as a state department official how much what does the U.S. believe is Israel's responsibility inside Gaza now? Is it, do, does the State Department or the administration believe like, like what Colin Powell said way back in the Iraq war, the Pottery Barn Rule, you break it, you own it?
2: Yeah, and thank you very much indeed for having me on. Uh, so, look, I'm talking to you today on a day where the official count, which, of course, the U.S. government has publicly said it believes is an undercount, Uh, of deaths in Gaza has crossed 30,000. I think the US, sorry, rather, Israel has an immense amount of responsibility here, right? Israel is the occupying power, both in Gaza and the West Bank. That is the case today. That was the case uh, prior to October 7th. And as the occupying power, it has the responsibility for the health and welfare of the people of Gaza. I don't know uh, exactly what happened this morning. It seems certainly to be a, a, a tragedy that was completely avoidable. I don't know how many were killed by the IDF machine gun fire versus how many were run over or trampled. But let's be clear on the context. A UN expert has said this week that Israel is using starvation as a weapon of war. That is a war crime. We've seen children starve to death in just the past few days, and we know that the population of Gaza is increasingly desperate. When you compound that with the destruction of infrastructure and, of course, linked to that, the complete destruction and collapse of society and the social contract in North Gaza, the breakdown of order, uh, and as you noted to to Mark Regev, uh, the notion of the IDF providing human security in that context in Gaza right now is just an absurdity, and, and it's also not what they are trained for. Uh, even setting aside the inherent questions about the intentions of a, a number of IDF. Soldiers, as we have seen on social media. Mm-hmm.
1: Let, let yeah. me just interrupt you a second, because you talked about deliberate starvation. So you heard, presumably, maybe Mark Regev say to me, you don't think we're trying to, you know, hurt. You know, I think he may have said starve or what?' to deny them food. Um, we're trying to get more aid in. Why do you say deliberate starvation?
2: Well, so first of all, we've heard U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan express his own frustration uh, that Israel was preventing the provision uh, of US-funded humanitarian assistance of flour, which I believe today's convoy actually represents a small part of. Um, we know that countries including France, Egypt, Jordan, uh, the UAE and Qatar have had to resort to airdrops uh, to provide humanitarian assistance to Gaza. You know, really, the answer, I think, has to be a seaborne delivery. And this is a proposal uh, that the Geneva International Peace Research Institute has put forward uh, in recent days, but of course, Israel has not only withheld food; it has also struck uh, Gaza's water processing plant. Uh, it has struck Gaza's electricity infrastructure. So I think it is very clear right now uh, that the obstacle to the humanitarian assistance here, despite you know a handful of trucks passing once or twice, uh, you know, at the various checkpoints, uh, is Israel.
1: So Senator Chris Van Hollen called the denial of food, um, you know, a, a war crime on the Senate floor. And uh, a spokesperson for the NSC said the White House is, is looking into this latest, very, is quote, serious incident is how they claim it. And they say it underscores the importance of expanding and sustaining the flow of humanitarian assistance into Gaza, including through a potential temporary ceasefire. We continue to work day and night to achieve that outcome. So, how do you see that happening? I mean, operationally. Clearly, the United States has been involved in delivering aid in the worst kinds of situations and now apparently is considering airdropping as well. We saw in besieged Sarajevo an organized airlift, uh, you know, that, that at least propped up the civilian population under fire and besieged for four years. What, there is a war going on. How do you see the ability to also take care of the civilian population, at least their food and water needs and their medicine needs? Or is that actually not possible in the kind of counteroffensive and the destruction of infrastructure that we see uh, right now?
2: So I think when you're talking about over two million people, uh, the, the need is dire and vast and will be enduring. It's going to take many, many years, uh, if at all, frankly, for Gaza to get back on its feet, Uh, And so there's certainly uh, a need for an international response here. But as you say, I don't know how feasible that is while the bombs continue to drop uh, in the absence of a ceasefire. Uh, You know, in the last few weeks, we've also seen food convoys struck by, for example, uh, IDF tank shells and by naval bombardment. Uh, So we need to see a a resumption, uh, a a real ceasefire. And I think it's also important to ask, you know, as people say, well, is this really the time for a ceasefire? A ceasefire from what, right? Context is important here. If it were the case uh, that the IDF, as they are fully capable of doing, was precisely targeting uh, Hamas, you know, senior military officials, as they've shown they're capable of doing in Lebanon, for example, uh, that would be one thing. Uh, But in fact, what we've seen is, as Secretary of Defense Austin told Congress today, uh, 25,000 women and children killed in Gaza in the past four months. And in that context, you know, to say, well, if Hamas just gave up you know, the hostages and surrendered, there would be a ceasefire, uh, I think is a misunderstanding of what a ceasefire is. What it's actually saying, those who say that, is, well, if Hamas just gave up the hostages and surrendered itself, we would stop killing women and children. And that's just an absolutely depraved position to take.
1: Well, I have to say the word, the number 25,000 by the US Secretary of Defense is, is very, very focusing and concentrating. And, um, it is, and it, I would note, yeah. if just I may, same in the
2: exact...
1: Yeah, no. I, I need to ask you another question, though. You resigned in protest from this administration over their policy. Has anything changed? Have you seen anything changing? Um, you know, Prime Minister Netanyahu is, like, I mean, really saying pretty much no in public to everything the U.S. says just about. Um again, leverage on weapons. There's a lot of questioning now amongst young Americans, amongst the voters, not to mention overseas, about why doesn't the US use its leverage, uh, the only leverage it really has, which is continuing to supply these weapons that are being used, certainly at this time.
2: No, that's right. And, and yeah, so, I mean, in the context of those 25,000 women and children that the Secretary of Defence, Austin said to be killed, he also noted in the same testimony uh, that the U.S. has provided since October 7th 21,000 precision-guided munitions to Israel. Uh, so there's a clear uh, impact that the U.S. is having here, a clear complicity and a clear leverage. Look, I, I think the Biden administration has done two things. Uh, it has changed its tone, uh, which I think is nice, but ultimately ineffective. And in recent days, there has been an executive order on settlement of violence. There has been a national security memorandum uh, on compliance with international law. Uh, There has been a UN resolution the US has floated uh, saying that this is not the right circumstances for Israel to go into Rafah. None of that is the same as action. And what we need here is action. But at the same time, I do think that the Biden administration is establishing at least a framework for escalation. It is signaling to Israel that it has options available. Uh, Whether it will use those options, I think we need to be deeply skeptical until it happens.
1: Are you hearing from any other members of your former you know, colleagues about concerns, the kind of concerns that prompted you to leave?
2: Oh, yes. I mean, constantly. Uh, I was actually in the Netherlands this week meeting with Dutch civil servants who have been conducting daily sit-ins or weekly sit-ins outside their own foreign ministry. Uh, this is a lit- set of concerns held by civil servants across Europe and across America uh, who continue to speak out, and I think they should be listened to. Uh, there is a disconnect here between the expertise of our civil servants, the policies uh, and the policy understanding of our, of our civil servants and our institutions on the one hand, uh, and the politics and the politicians uh, and the direction they are setting. Uh, and I think we need to recognize that gap, which is unique in my experience, uh, and pay attention to those voices.
1: Josh Paul, thank you very much indeed for joining us. And finally tonight, we wanted to leave you with a little bit of a celebration of life and some incredible images that have actually never been seen before, never been captured before, as humpback whales have been observed mating. Now, it's the first time this has been captured. And indeed, such amorous encounters are exceedingly rare because humpback whales only breed every two to three years and their calves take 11 months to gestate. But that probably won't even be happening to the humpbacks in these historic pictures because both are males. So I guess underwater is a safe haven. That's it for now. If you ever miss our show, you can find the latest episode shortly after it airs on our podcast. And remember, you can always catch us online on our website and all over social media. Thank you for watching and goodbye from London.